You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about environmental health. Joining me is Dr. Leonardo Trisande. He is the Jim G. Hendrick Professor, Director of the Division of Environmental Pediatrics, and Vice Chair for Research in the Department of Pediatrics at the NYU School of Medicine. He also serves on the faculty of the NYU Wagner School of Public Service and the NYU College of Global Public Health. Dr. Trisande is an internationally renowned leader in environmental health, and we are so lucky to have him here talking to us today about his research. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. So it's not very common to see a division of environmental pediatrics at children's hospitals. So I'm hoping that you can start off by telling us about yours at NYU. Well, we started ours back in 2017, and it was in response to growing understanding and concern about the role of environmental hazards in kids' lives. You know, the average medical student still to this day gets two, maybe five hours of environmental health in her his training. And often it's about air pollution and lead exposure, and we're learning so much about a broader array of contaminants in kids' lives, tens of thousands of chemicals that we have in our environment, of whom increasingly we're understanding these chemicals mess with the hormones in our bodies in particular, and thereby contribute to disease. And so I was really privileged that the NYU School of Medicine thought ahead and realized that they needed to establish a division to really put this rapidly growing field on full display. That's awesome that they were so proactive in this. I'm interested how you became interested in this and built this into your pediatrics career. Well, so the story starts when I applied to medical school. I was chemistry major as an undergraduate, not really focused on healthcare policy, but I applied during the Clinton healthcare debates. And I kept getting asked interview questions about my perspective on the Clinton healthcare plan. And at one point, I asked an interviewer, well, what training do I get about healthcare policy? And that interview didn't go very well after that question, (laughs) uh, probably because I put the interviewer on the spot for a change. And it made me realize that I would need to learn elsewhere about the role of healthcare policy. And so I decided to take a detour between my third and fourth year of medical school and uh, go to the Kennedy School of Government. And boy, my mind really opened up. And that infected me, if you will, with capital fever. And so after my Mm -hmm. pediatrics residency at at Boston Children's and Boston Medical Center, I decided to spend a year working for then-Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton. And I was told I would be working on children's and environmental health policy. Figured I had the children's health part down, but boy, Mm -hmm. was I in for a surprise. And I learned so much in that year, really reset my thinking, made me realize how much impact I could have, not just at a single patient level by prescribing or caring or advising families on how to deal with a condition, but 
even at a broader population level, at hundreds and thousands of children at a time, changing and modifying the environment that we live in for the better. It's really fun to hear, as someone who's been doing interviews, how an interviewer is questioning and how the policy of the current time really helped shape your career. That's really fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about your research. So your work on the Endocrine Disrupting Chemical, or EDC, Disease Burden Working Group has helped draw attention to the disease-related costs of chemicals. We know that there's a lot of disease-related concerns, which you mentioned before with endocrine disruptors, such as obesity, ADHD, autism, and infertility. But can you explain why it's been important to study costs? Well, it's a great question. And the reason it's important to study costs is that these chemicals are made by companies who profit from the manufacturing. And often the consequences of these exposures, the negative ones for society, for people who don't purchase the product and simply are exposed in their daily lives for whatever reason, don't get really accounted for. And that leads to an overproduction of the chemical, that product, that can harm kids' lives in particular. And often when you see policy debates or just debates in general about the use of these chemicals, you often see one side. You often see, well, this will be a major drain on the economy to change a company's behavior. But when you're talking about something that costs society $340 billion, that's billion with a B, each year, 2.3% of our gross domestic product, that's really a wake-up call that we've really not balanced the debate and really made our trade-offs in the right way. And so the goal of this kind of work is not simply to zero out chemical exposures, far from it, but we know that there are toxic chemical exposures that seem to have gotten into our daily lives without much care to testing chemicals before they're used. And we need to take a step back and realize that maybe we need to reduce certain exposures and swap out toxic exposures for ones that may not be so problematic. So that's the hope of this kind of work. People ask me if I'm a health economist really often, and that's not my core training. I'm a pediatrician at heart and environmental health researcher, but I do see the impact of the dollars and cents argument on kids' lives. Yeah, and I think that's an important perspective for people to keep in mind when they're doing all different types of advocacy work, that paying attention to that, like you said, dollars and cents angle can really have a big impact. It's also important for us to be aware of racial disparities in environmental health. We know that children of color are more likely to be exposed to certain chemicals and pollutants, and this has negative impacts on their health. So how does your work promote health equity? Well, we unfortunately have documented that Kids in particular from low-income and racial and ethnic minority populations suffer greater exposures and therefore greater disease and they're therefore bear the costs at a societal level more than kids from high-income backgrounds or uh, majority populations. And that really reinforces the reality that disparities are not just born of diet and physical activity. They're born out of chemical exposures. And we're not just talking about living near toxic waste sites, which was the initial alarm about environmental health disparities. These are products sold disproportionately to populations who may not have the same choices as others. 
and therefore have higher exposures to toxic chemicals that can impair them for the rest of their lives. All the more important, like you mentioned before, to make these policy changes so that we can have more safe choices for everybody and not just the people who can afford to pay a higher cost for things that are safer. And that's where the market really does magic. I like to say often that the father of modern economics, Adam Smith, would have been an environmental health advocate, and that's because he would see market forces as fixing the problems created by these environmental exposures. So when you have increases in market share, the way we've seen, for example, explosions in the market share for organic food as opposed to conventional food, you see the price margins go down. So even the big box stores now have organic food side by side with conventional. You don't see the same price differences that you saw before. I mean, I work at Bellevue Hospital, the flagship of the New York City public hospital system. And now I can advise people to eat organic. And in particular for those leafy green vegetables and fruits where you eat that outer layer, it's especially important and it doesn't necessarily have to break the bank. Yeah, that's a great point. And brings me to what I wanted to shift to, which was taking action, which you focus on in your book, Sicker, Fatter, Poorer. You highlight in your book that we should limit exposures to pesticides, phthalates, and flame retardants. And we know that parents are barraged with lists of things that they should and shouldn't do. So I want to talk about how we can make these recommendations easier for them. Let's start with pesticides. So we were just talking about organic foods. Parents often ask me if they should buy organic foods, and if they have a limited budget, are there specific foods that they should prioritize as buying organic? So there's the latest version of the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15, and this provides a nice roadmap for families who might need to be more careful in picking and choosing what food they buy as organic. The Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 are put out by Environmental Working Group, which is a not-for-profit organization. But what data they take is actually from the Environmental Protection Agency. So this is federal data about what the residues are of these pesticides on fruits and vegetables in the food you actually eat. And unfortunately, they find that it's the foods where you eat this outer layer, the strawberries, the nectarines, spinach, leafy greens in particular, where you have this higher exposure. Those are the so-called dirty dozens. So that's where you get the biggest bang for your buck. And studies have found that eating organic in low-income as well as high-income populations can be effective at reducing pesticide-level exposures in kids directly. And these are immediate changes you can see in days. So we're not talking about a long-term investment that is necessary to see immediate changes. And the benefits start to accumulate, not just in the short term in changes in levels of exposure, but it can occur in the medium term in weeks in terms of levels of hormones in our body, and then in the months that follow in terms of chronic disease prevention. So this doesn't necessarily have to be something that just high-income or well-to-do populations can do. And then there's that clean 15 where you don't have to worry so much. Let's say an avocado. You don't eat that outer layer of the avocado, so it's less important to eat organic. Now, I might buy organic avocado simply because I'm trying to send a message and push the market to do the right thing and reward companies that do organic agriculture. But that's my decision. 
Next, you mentioned phthalates, which are used to make plastics soft, but they act as thyroid inhibitors and endocrine disruptors. These are found in food packaging as well as personal care products. I'll admit that before the pandemic, I made a very conscious effort to avoid phthalate exposure in my household. However, in an age of being germ conscious, I feel like I've used a lot more single-use plastics this year because of their disposability. So help me get back on track. How can we minimize phthalate exposures? Well, there's always glass as a first step, but the recycling number on the plastic can be helpful. If you have to pick plastic, definitely it's good to avoid the numbers three, six, and seven. Three are for phthalates, which antagonize the male sex hormone testosterone and can make us fatter. They mess with the metabolism in our bodies. Six is for styrene, a known carcinogen. And seven is an other category that includes bisphenols that are synthetic estrogens and can also make us fatter. Now, if you have to use plastic, please definitely don't microwave or machine dishwash plastic because that can erode the plastic over time, breaking down polymers into monomers and ultimately chemicals that get into food. And then there are chemicals that are not covalently bound to plastics that enter into food readily when they get heated or are treated with harsh detergents. And those include the phthalates, which are these additives to many common plastics. But the biggest message as we get back to normal is that more broadly, there are effects of plastics, period. And we need to really rethink globally our strategy about using plastics in daily lives. And insofar as we can avoid plastic altogether and definitely single-use plastic, that's an important way to advance not just our planet's health, but the health of each of us individuals. Those are some great tips. Now, next is BPA. And for the longest time, BPA was the thing that every baby bottle told me that it had removed. However, I learned that there are a lot of other products that still have BPA, like canned foods and beverages. And in the past few years, there's been a big trend toward canned sparkling waters. And as a pediatrician, this is often a better option for my patients who are cutting back on their sugary beverages. Should my patients worry, though, about drinking canned beverages? Fortunately, there are alternatives. And the bad news in particular, even about those BPA-free cans, is that they are increasingly replaced with chemicals a lot like BPA. There's 40 or so now bisphenols, chemicals I call artists formerly known as BPA in homage to Prince. (laughs) And what little we know about one replacement, bisphenol S or BPS, is that it's estrogenic, it is as toxic to embryos, And it also has a persistent pattern in the environment that's even worse than bisphenol A. So we're talking about chemicals that replacing BPA that are as if not more problematic than BPA itself. So to your point, you're seeing a lot of companies now pushing glass out there Mm -hmm. as an alternative. And we need to keep pushing in that direction, particularly problematic for me are these canned waters and sparkling waters. As we get back to normal and taps reopen and faucets reopen, that's really a straightforward way to get water directly from the source without adding any additional synthetic chemicals that may be problematic over and above that. Okay, good to know. And lastly, we know there are environmental toxins such as flame retardants that may be in our homes and can be costly to replace entirely at once. 
So how can families try to mitigate their exposures? So step one is to literally use a wet mop and recirculate the air regularly. And that's because flame retardants are part of a broader class of persistent organic pollutants or POPs that can accumulate from electronics, furniture, variety of products in our homes and accumulate as dust. And particularly for babies who are crawling on the floor and playing close to the ground, they're going to get higher exposures compared to us adults, even beyond their greater exposure per pound body weight. In addition, when you have furniture that's scratched or torn, it's particularly important to cover that with a slip cover or uh, potentially get rid of that piece of furniture. And that's because the flame retardants are sprayed directly into the upholstery. Now, the good news more generally is that California no longer requires flame retardants to be added to furniture. And now you're seeing requirements for labeling. So you can actually look at the bottom of a new piece of furniture and look at the label and see if something has flame retardants or not. Very good to know. Those are very helpful tips for us. Now, another thing that I hear a lot in clinic is about baby foods. And just a few months ago, a report claimed that 95% of baby foods contain toxic heavy metals, including arsenic, cadmium, lead, or mercury. And now we know that news stories like these circulate every few years. So it, it seems we haven't improved our monitoring and testing of the food supply yet if I keep hearing this. So what advice do you give parents who are worried about heavy metals in baby food? So first of all, you're absolutely right. The Food and Drug Administration doesn't take on the full oversight it can of chemicals intentionally and unintentionally added to foods. Now, metals are the easiest to measure, and we've made so much progress in getting lead out of gasoline and paint, mercury even out of coal-fired power plants, that we keep getting better and better at limiting those exposures such that one of the remaining sources of metal exposures in the human population is from the earth, from natural sources and contamination of food literally grown in the soil. Does that mean you don't eat food from regular agriculture, particularly organic agriculture? No, not at all. In fact, eating organic is even more important because Pesticides are increasingly identified as greater contributors to the brain drain. That is, they cause greater brain damage at a population level than metals because we've made so much progress in getting metals out of kids' lives. And in general, we need to put the pressure on the Food and Drug Administration to do the right thing and monitor foods, not just for metals, but for a broad array of these organic contaminants like the phthalates and the bisphenols and even the pesticides, because consumers are really demanding that kind of information. So if families want to limit, limit metals and exposure through baby food, it really comes down to eating a diverse array of foods. But the biggest message here is to focus on avoiding pesticides and other carbon-based contaminants that are really entering the food supply through other sources. Those are great practical tips. I know that everyone who's listening is probably going through their household right now, throwing out their plastics, covering up that ripped furniture, wet mopping, and all the things that you've told us about. And people might be feeling a little stressed about all the potential environmental threats to the children in their household. So let's end on a positive note, looking toward the future. 
Where are we going and what are you hopeful about in pediatrics and environmental health? Well, first of all, there's been so much explosion in attention to environmental contaminants, and a lot of that is driven by the growing threat of climate change and really the the mindset in Generation Z and the millennials that are really driving the change we seek. And it's no secret that if you combat climate change, you actually combat a major source of chemicals commonly found in plastics like phthalates and bisphenols. And that's because many of the chemicals used to make plastics and other endocrine disruptors come from petroleum, from fossil fuels. And so there's actually a two-for-one deal if you focus on climate change and really implement the kinds of changes in how we get our fuels and how we get our energy that we really need for other reasons. Now, we need to keep our eye on the ball when it comes to these chemicals because you can cool the planet, but if we're all contaminated with these synthetic chemicals of concern, we'll leave behind a population that is less well able to grow and thrive in the same way it did, even if the planet is cool. Those are some great messages for us. As you said, as we get back to normal, thank you for pointing us towards the bigger picture here too and not worrying so much about the little details, but really driving us back, as you mentioned, to public health policy work, which I know in pediatrics is so important to all of us. We really appreciate you telling us more about environmental pediatrics today and sharing with us your extensive research history here. We will link to your website on ours, which is www.chop.edu slash PCP podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.